Hello and welcome to an exclusive podcast brought to you by VJ Hemonk, an open access online video journal that provides healthcare professionals with trusted and up-to-date information in oncology through innovative digital media, including video interviews, podcasts, webcasts, and more. Today, we hear from three top AML clinicians who debate the use of IDH inhibitors in acute myeloid leukemia. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the AML sessions on VJ Hemonk. Today, uh, uh, we are joined by my good colleagues, Stefan de Baton, who is the head of the hematology department at the Institut Gustave Rousset in Paris, France, and Dr. Daniel Pallier, the associate professor of medicine at the University of Colorado in Denver, and the clinical director of the leukemia program there. My name is Amir Fatih. I'm the director of the leukemia program at Massachusetts General Hospital and associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Thank you so much for joining us. Today, we're going to be doing a deep dive into the latest research and development in the field of IDH inhibition in myeloid malignancies and acute myeloid leukemia. And I'm lucky to be joined by these two experts here today uh, to go through some of the more uh, recent uh, data. I would like to start actually with some of the uh, background um, uh, in uh, IDH mutated AML just to sort of place this in the, in the proper context. Um, so approximately 10 years ago, um, IDH mutations were first uh, discovered in, in myeloid malignancies, initially IDH1 and then a short while thereafter IDH2 mutations. Um, and uh, not long after that, uh, there was a sort of a very frenzied attempt at drug development, which was very successful. First, uh, the IDH2 inhibitor, enacidinib, uh, and thereafter, uh, the IDH1 inhibitor, ivocidinib, uh, were studied um, in um, phase one uh, dose escalation and expansion, and thereafter, um, uh, phase two study. Uh, leading to the approval um, of uh, NSIDNIB, the IDH2 inhibitor, and relapsed refractory IDH2-mutated AML, and then shortly thereafter, the approval of ivocidinib, the IDH1 inhibitor, in relapsed refractory IDH1-mutated AML. Um, and then afterwards, the ivocidinib was also approved for frontline use. In recent years, there has been uh, development in trying to see if these drugs can be used in other uh, settings and in combination with conventional therapies, which uh, I think somewhat brings us to where we are today, which is the development and study of these drugs in combination with conventional therapies and in other uh, myeloid uh, malignancies. Uh, the field of AML has been further crowded by other uh, therapies uh, that may be effective in IDH-mutated AML as well. So I'm happy to have Dr. Debaton and Dr. Paglia here with me today to uh, discuss some of that. So with that, I'd like to sort of open up the panel and uh, speak to my uh, colleagues here. Let's start uh, with uh, relapsed uh, refractory uh, IDH-mutated AML. So let me start with Dr. Paulier. What is your general approach now um, when you have um, a relapsed or refractory IDH-mutated uh, AML patient uh, who has progressed beyond initial line of therapy. I, I assume that the answer is probably relatively straightforward, but in some patients it may not be. Yeah, thank, thanks, Amir. Um, you know, I, I think uh, we have a labeled indication uh, for that setting, um, and, and specifically, you know, use of the IDH2 inhibitor and acidinib. Um, 
you know, and, and, and as you well know, and Stefan too, I mean, it, you know, so much depends on the goals of the patient and the setting. Uh, if this is a patient who has, a, 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 um, you know, a path to a cure, you know, via a, a transplant, then um, that could be our goal, um, whether that's a first uh, transplant in the relapse setting or a second transplant, um, you know, getting a patient back into remission, um, you know, for, for that uh, um, purpose is uh, a very reasonable endeavor. And I think an IDH inhibitor is, uh, is a reasonable attempt to try to, to do that. Um, and then alternatively, if, if we're more in a palliative situation, um, you know, then uh, again, you know, getting a patient back into a remission or some degree of disease control is the goal. And um, again, you know, an IDH inhibitor can, can do that successfully. Or even sometimes, even if you aren't able to get, you know, an objective response with an IDH inhibitor and your goal is palliation, you can still get uh, uh, closer to that goal uh, through uh, what we've seen and you've published, um, uh, you know, some of the improvement with respect to the um, transfusion needs and, and, you know, secondary sort of quality of life endpoints as a result. So that's actually an interesting point you uh, brought up, um, Dan. I, mean, I think so some of these patients actually go into a remission and get transplanted, uh, depending on their goals of care. When, when do you decide to move toward a transplant? This is something that I struggle with a little bit in my practice. You know, do you wait until you have cleared the IDH uh, mutational burden? Do you attempt to do that before you go to transplant? There's not much data guiding us. Do you go at first um, uh, you know, um, uh, remission Im immediately when you get a remission, then go to transplant? Do you wait a little bit to deepen that remission? What is your approach? I, I think our um, transplant colleagues mostly are looking for a morphologic remission. Um, you know, yeah, they would like as deep a remission as possible, um, but, but I'm fortunate to work with some pretty realistic people who know that, you know, I can only do so much. And so, uh, and, and so yes, I think in an ideal world, deep remissions, but, um, but we'll, take a, we'll take a morphologic remission to, uh, to a transplant. Uh, Stefan, you know, um, some of the recent uh, uh, data emerging from the IDENTIFY study, uh, which I think you're very familiar with, uh, uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb recently had a press release that uh, announced that it did not meet its uh, primary endpoint of overall survival. Uh, I would say, and I, and I suspect Dan would probably agree with me, that that probably won't change our general approach to the management of relapse refractory IDH-mutated patients in this country. How about in Europe? What are your thoughts about uh, that? Thank you. I fully agree with Dan already said, but in Europe, uh, the drug is not approved yet in that indication. Um, so it's easier. And uh, we have the Compassionate Use program in France and in other countries, but it's very limited outside France at first sight. So what, what we are doing, it's exactly the same as uh, Dan uh, already said. I think we take into account, if we intend to administer an IDH inhibitor, is trying to, to decide because there are new treatments you both developed, especially with Benetoclax, that could be interesting in that situation. We, we try to, to select those who, are, who won't respond, and we have molecular ideas about those who won't respond due to primary resistance. 
Meaning, for instance, if they had more than six associated mutations, huge commutation burden is something that is important to take into account. But also the type of mutations, for instance, if you have RTK mutations, especially flat tree, the response rate is rather low. Because the drug is safe, you can use it, but expectations are not so high as what we have had in other circumstances. So it's something to take into account. So in Europe, I, I can't tell you, for uh, identified questions about how do you realize a, a randomized phase three trial and you know it by heart because some promising drug may have difficulties in, in the setting of randomized phase two trial in, in centers which are not uh, trained because it's quite difficult to, to continue in treatment without seeing any improvements after two months, for instance. And, but you must be really very patient with these drugs. It's not so easy to use. So you think that the results of the identified trial may be particularly challenging to interpret because of that, because of potential uh, lack of experience? I suspect I, I, uh, I don't have all this data, but I suspect that the response rate would be very low, which yeah. is fairly unusual. And in the U.S., a country where you're the most trained, I'm probably sure that if we take into account what has been done the last two years, your results are by far much better. Yeah, but it won't, it wouldn't necessarily change your personal approach to managing these patients, the phase three data from identified trials. Probably not because I'm very confident what we have seen together uh, in the right. field, it's, it's really promising. We all know that it's not a monogenic disease and for the first time we know the precise role of the mutation, the commutation right. conundrum and is it a true mutation that may block the differentiation or not, we have the answer because the drug is always on the target, or almost, for, right. for most mutations. So uh, it's something really promising, but the combo is really promising because right. most of the patient relapsed. We need to combine it. And you've seen these results in the U.S. with the combination with intensive chemo, but also with 5 It's It's really impressive. Right. So let's um, move on. Actually, we're going to talk about that uh, shortly. But I also wanted to uh, bring up some of the results that were presented um, at uh, SOHO um, in uh, Houston, or at least virtually uh, this year. Uh, I think that, uh, Stefan, you were there. Uh, Courtney presented some data, not uh, on AML, uh, but on MDS. So uh, let me go back to Dan and uh, get his thoughts regarding his general approach and if there is any variance in how he approaches the treatment of IDH-mutated MDS. Courtney presented some data that, uh, uh, in, you know, uh, in combination with azacitidine IDH uh, inhibition, leads to a fairly impressive overall response rate, but the range of responses are different uh, than what you generally see uh, with AML. M much more marrow CRs, much less full CRs, although the benchmark, as we all know, of CR for MDS is a bit higher. Um, and, uh, but nevertheless, uh, uh, promising data. So uh, what is your general uh, approach to an MDS patient who has an IDH mutation? What type of, ID, uh, what type of MDS patient do you sort of generally choose uh, to use IDH uh, inhibitors in um, either in combination or as monotherapy? Yeah, well, you know, as you know, Amir, you know, the incidence of IDH mutations in MDS is just is, is lower than in AML. Um, 
So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not as common a finding as the 20-ish percent, you know, incidence in, in AML. But because we're so desperate for treatments for MDS and because we're so bad at treating MDS, we all welcome this type of opportunity when we see, you know, the presence of an IV mutation in an MDS patient. And we should all, you know, view that as an opportunity. Um, so, you know, um, you know, for, for a high risk or high grade MDS patient with an IDH mutation, you know, it's, it's a, it would be an off label effort to, to try to get an IDH targeted therapy. But I think that that would be a reasonable effort. And as you said, Courtney's data, um, you know, show a pretty promising, um, morphologic response rate, at least compared to what the expectations would be with a hypomethylating agent alone. So I, I definitely think that that is uh, uh, something that we need to consider and, and to you know uh, refer patients for clinical trials to further understand this uh, because I do think that you know uh, the difference between AML and many patients with MDS that's on its way to MDL uh, that's on its way to AML is almost nothing biologically. So there's no reason to assume that the responses that we've uh, you know, seen in AML couldn't be applied to MDS. I myself, off uh, outside of a clinical trial, I'm not, you know, giving upfront IDH inhibitors to uh, MDS patients with IDH mutations. Um, but uh, absolutely, if uh, in, in the hypomethylator failure setting or in the relapse setting or an intolerance situation, you know, I think it's definitely a reasonable thing to try to do uh, despite, you know, the restrictions that we have on, uh, from the label. Stefan, do you use IDH inhibitors in MDS? Again, in the same way, it's not approved, but it's something that can be, uh, as Dan said, very interesting. Besides, clinical trial is very difficult. I think it's the best way to judge the efficacy of the treatment, and we, you need to refer these patients to train centers with, with clinical trials. I think it's the best way to do it. The other thing is, it's, it's critical to have uh, synergistic effects and uh, with, with 5As or, or other HMA, that's really very interesting. And lastly, the mutations again are really very important. Uh, in MDS, it's a little bit different than in AML, but the general approach should be the same. I agree. I mean, I think the only uh, scenarios where I've generally used uh, this um, IDH inhibitors in MDS have been predominantly in the relapsed refractory setting when, where I'm desperate, you know, and I, and I can't get responses. And I think in those settings, uh, just like Dan was describing with his AML patients, on occasion you'll get a nice response and you can actually bridge a patient to transplant. Let's move on to what uh, Stefan was mentioning earlier, the promise of adding uh, IDH inhibitors to hypomethylating agents. This data has been recently presented at, at several meetings. Stefan uh, summarized this at SOHO as well. Uh, the overall response rates associated with uh, ivocidinib and enacidinib in combination with uh, azacitidine is, is promising. A small number of patients uh, in uh, phase one, uh, uh, large phase one studies with um, uh, ivocidinib and a randomized phase two study with enacidinib revealed uh, a, a composite remission rate, meaning CR plus CRI, uh, in the sort of 69, 60, mid-60 percentage range, which is what you see also with um, hypermethylating therapy plus venetoclax. Um, and the overall response rate was also quite impressive, sort of in the 70 to 80% range, 
uh, which is which is quite interesting. So, um, as someone who is uh, an expert in the field of uh, treating patients with HMA venetoclax, I want to ask uh, Dan what his gen. This is a sort of a perennial question now. You know, <laughs> what to do with an IDH mutated patient in the upfront setting? I think everybody has their own thoughts about this, uh, but there was recent data that had emerged um, uh, showing that uh, HMA venetoclax, at least recent phase three data, confirming prior speculation that, th that this regimen is quite uh, impactful and efficacious in IDH mutated patients. So Dan, what is your approach? Yeah, I think you nailed it. I mean, you know, I, I don't think you can be faulted for, you know, considering um, targeting the IDH in the upfront setting. I think any therapy, including a targeted therapy, is liable to work better in the upfront setting. Um, the, the issues are a little more, and with ibocidinib, you're on label, so at least in this country. I mean, the issues get a little more complicated when you take into account the fact that, you know, a venetoclax-based regimen is sort of agnostic to these different mutations, and one can with confidence start a therapy with a venetoclax-based regimen without the extra time that is necessary to wait to get back your IDH results, which, you know, in some places could be a considerable amount of time. And then also take into consideration, you know, not the, the comparison that one needs to make, it's like you said, is, is not just uh, an IDH inhibitor plus AZA versus all venAZA patients. You really would want to look at how the IDH positive patients do. And like you uh, suggested, the new Newland Journal of Medicine paper is out, randomized, you know, phase three data there with a fair number of patients. And, you know, the, the propensity for IDH positive patients to have an even better response than expected, you know, with, uh, with an IDH wild type patient with venetoclax-based regimen, you know, really well into the 80, you know, mid 80 and, and higher percentage is, is, is clear. So I think it's, it's, it's impossible at this time to compare these two treatments. Uh, but my bias for those, all those reasons is to continue using the venetoclax and then, you know, having the IDH inhibitor in your back pocket for an on-label relapse situation is really reassuring. You know, venetoclax in the relapse situation, you're off-label, not much data, real unclear expectations. So that's another reason that's how I prefer to sequence it. How about you, Stefan? Uh, new patient, not induction eligible, hypomethylating therapy, you want to use a combination, IDH mutated. Do you do HMA venetoclax or do you use an IDH inhibitor in combination? Um, we need to test this hypothesis in a randomized trial yet. Um, what it will be approved in Europe will be venasa With uh, the combo with IDH, <clears throat> especially the randomized phase two presented by Courtney should be positive because for the first time, ASA alone had very good results. It's, it's a big surprise. Why? That's crazy. We've never seen that. And uh, <clears throat> in the Venasa trial, it's, it's completely different. So it's very difficult to, to determine which is better or not. And that was a small study also relatively yes. difficult. Yes. With IVO, you have a huge proportion of uh, mutational clearance associated in the combo. Um, so obviously, we would like to combine these three drugs. That's if very you, interesting. If your intention is to compare both, the, the safety will, will be, and tolerability will be something very important. And maybe you have to change the way of uh, administration. With, with Venasa. 
That is a, that's a, that's a big consideration. As we all know, the combination of HMA and venetoclax is quite marrow suppressive. It is somewhat challenging in some patients. It may, the combination of IDH inhibition and HMA is probably not as marrow suppressive. So that is a consideration. But the last topic I wanted to cover is actually related to tolerability, which is uh, differentiation uh, syndrome. Um, and um, I wanted to ask Stefan, so, since he is an expert in the field of differentiation, whether you know, in the studies of IDH inhibitors in combination um, uh, versus IDH inhibitors uh, as monotherapy, has he seen a difference in terms of the incidence and severity of differentiation syndrome or the timing of it? At first sight, yes, because with the combination with chemo uh, as the differentiation syndrome is related also to the leukemic burden, at least in APL. If you add chemo, you have less uh, DS syndrome uh, in APL. And at first sight, it's also true uh, with the US series, the US and German uh, series combining uh, IDH inhibitors with intensive chemo. So uh, I think it's roughly the same, except the incidence, because it's not completely superposable. Uh, APL is a monogenic disease. You always have differentiation, which is not the case because we have most of the patients do not respond to ADH inhibitors in the relapse refractory setting. Right. So if you do see something that could be a DS, and if it's not responding, by definition, it's not a DS. Yeah, now this is something that you and I have worked on a lot to try and figure yes. out what is DS and what is not DS. It is challenging. I mean, uh, you know, these patients, uh, as we all know, have multiple, you know, so differentiation syndrome is a vague syndrome of uh, pleural effusions, fevers, respiratory distress, rash, renal issues, lymphadenopathy, all of which can be seen in leukemia by itself and all sorts of infections that arise during the treatment of AML. So it's hard to tease out sometimes. But I, I always, to our viewers, I always advise that if you're suspicious of differentiation syndrome, uh, around two to six to eight uh, weeks, maybe even longer following the initiation of IDH inhibitor therapy, you should treat everything else that you're suspicious of, but also treat the differentiation syndrome um, presumptively because it can get out of hand quickly. And the treatment of that is uh, dexamethasone, typically 10 milligrams twice a day. Stopping the drug by itself will not achieve your aims because of the long half-life of the drug. So um, that is generally what I recommend. If there is ongoing leukocytosis, you can manage that with hydria. If there's tumor lysis syndrome, you can manage that using the typical recommended pathways. But that is the general approach. Um, so I wanted to, with the remaining time left, to leave um, uh, the, the viewers with some final thoughts regarding the field of IDH inhibitors, uh, you know, what the current status is and what uh, the future may hold. So uh, let me just uh, turn over to Dan, see what his thoughts are about where we are and what he thinks is uh, perhaps most exciting in the future. Yeah, you know, IDH, you know, like you said, it's it's just, it's a super exciting confluence of, you know, our, our uh, under sophisticated understanding of the biology of this disease and, um, and you know, that merging into targeted therapies. And, and so there's a lot of uh, appropriate enthusiasm around this as a strategy. But I think we would all agree that, you know, where we are now is not where we want to be. I, I think we all would agree we want to do better. And like Stefan already said, you know, whether that's through combinations, whether that's through finding a better setting, 
Um, you know, there are other, you know, strategies in very early phase clinical development, targeting IDH in a variety of very novel ways. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm excited about, about the future of this, um, but I think it's really important for us to not be complacent and to continue to, you know, stretch our boundaries, refer patients to clinical trials, think of new and better ways to do this, and, and better settings for the patient for the drugs that we already have. Stefan? Uh, nothing more to say, except that maybe we've seen the secondary resistance could be also due to selection of the opposite mutation. And that's very interesting. Or also second site mutation entering the binding of the drug. So there is a clear need for combination and uh, always in the field of clinical trials. Thank you so much, Stefan. Uh, I'll just uh, leave uh, with a few words. I agree with everything that uh, Dan and Stefan said. They're obviously experts in this field and know a lot. It's an exciting time. You know, we, you know we're lucky, I think, as uh, uh, leukemia uh, specialists to sort of be working during this era. There were probably decades of leukemia docs who didn't have much to work with. We have a little bit more to work with. So I think this is an exciting time of drug development. Uh, Dan is right. There's lots of exciting uh, approaches being developed, uh, combinations being studied. I will uh, bring up that uh, there's also trials looking at IDH inhibitors, just as with FLT3 inhibitors, as maintenance therapy um, in uh, the post-transplant setting and probably they're going to be studied in other settings as well. So that might be another way to potentially study uh, these drugs and assess uh, their uh, promise going forward. So with that, I'd like to thank you so much for um, helping me uh, discuss and delve deeper into the field of IDH inhibition in myeloid malignancies and AML. And I wish everybody a good day. Thanks for listening. If you have found this podcast useful, please leave a review and subscribe on your preferred podcast app so we can continue to deliver expert-led content to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJHemonk and join in on the conversation. And finally, don't forget to visit vjhemonk.com for all the latest updates in the AML field.